100 lightning bolts blast the earth every second. These 80 million daily surges of power provide more energy than all of the electric generators combined in the United States. Even though three-quarters of the bolt's energy is used up, enough energy remains to deliver a full 125 million volts of electricity. Ironically, lightning is much more than what our eyes see. With a lightning bolt traveling 90,000 miles per second, it's hard to realize what is actually happening when lightning strikes the earth. The bolt gets its start from channels of pulsating electric energy two inches across going from the ground to the clouds. In Luke 10:18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Like the physical phenomenon of lightning, tremendous spiritual energy is released when the prayers of God's people start pulsating upward towards heaven. This moves God to act, to act on our behalf in order to defeat the enemy. We see this in the story we're going to look at today in our continuation in our study in the book of Esther. As she finally goes before the king to make the request that everybody has been waiting for, particularly the king. Earlier on in the book of Esther, she goes before the king to make a request, but she never truly gives to the king the reason why she was willing to risk her life to go before the king. She never does so. And of course, the king has a sleepless night wondering why his queen was willing to risk her life to make a request before him. Now we come to that part of the story where she's now going to go before the king and make this request. If you remember last week, we saw that Haman had a plot. He had a plot to kill his arch enemy. And we saw that his plot failed and that there was a result of having that plot fail. And we saw two of the last points last week that resulted in that failure. The failure resulted in two things. It resulted in uh, Haman starting to fall and that he had an ominous future. And so now we're going to see how this future for Haman plays out. And his future and his end is tied directly to the request of Esther. And so what I want to do, because her request is tied directly to Haman, her enemy's downfall, the question uh, I'm going to ask is this. How does Queen Esther's intercession, because remember, she's going to the king on behalf of her people. How does Queen Esther's intercession on behalf of her people successfully move the king to defeat her enemy? That's the question. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, read the first four verses which encompasses her request. And then I'm going to go back and walk through the request because there's three points I want to highlight that her request gives to us. So let's look at the first four verses, okay? 
Esther chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, that's the whole chapter. It's only 10 verses, but the first four verses. And so the king, remember last week, the eunuchs had come and they picked up Haman to go to the banquet. So now we're the next day and now we're going to see what's going to happen at this banquet. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Again, he wasn't literally offering her the kingdom. This was just an expression to show her that he was a generous king, and I will do what you want. Okay? So the queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king to let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So I'll end there. Okay, you may want to go back one if you for the screen, go back to the first. So, I want to look and examine at the request of Esther, keeping in mind that her request is going to move the king to defeat the enemy. So, the question is this how does Queen Esther's intercession on behalf of her people successfully move the king to defeat the enemy? The first reason is because the request she made was based on a special relationship that she had with the king. This is very subtle, and you have to compare her request here with her previous request. That's the only way you're going to see this, okay? In this request, verses 1 to 3, beginning in verse 3, the queen Esther answered and said, "I if I have found favor... In your sight, O king. That's important. He's asking her, she's asking him, if I have found favor in your sight. Now, she had gone in the past before the king and made a request before the king. And this is what she said in chapter 5, verse 8. This is the first time she's before the king. And she says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king. So the first time she's before the king, she says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, now she's before the king and she says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king. What's the difference? She has changed her expression and the way she makes her request. In the first, in the first account, it's given in the third person, in the sight of the king. In this account, she says, will you grant my request If you will grant it, oh, your king, she says, if I have found favor in your sight, oh, king. So what she has done in the the first time she makes the request, it is made in the third person, which means there's distance and separation. When she comes and makes a request this time around, she's asking in the second person by saying, in your sight. So now there's a, a special relationship. There's intimacy that is being suggested in the way she phrases her request which says that the petition that's coming is based on an intimate, special relationship. It's very subtle, but unless you see the comparison between her requests, you won't catch it. 
So the reason why she's going to be successful in interceding on behalf of her people is because the request is based on an intimate, special relationship. Okay? Number two, Queen Esther's intercession on behalf of her people was successful in moving the king to defeat her enemy because she was willing to publicly identify with her people. Again, verse 3, Then the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. What is she doing here? Remember, the king has no idea that she's Jewish, right? That's what Mordecai wanted Esther to do. Go before the king and publicly reveal your identity, which she was fearful to do at the beginning of Esther. But now she's going to explain and reveal that she's Jewish. But notice how she does it. She doesn't just come up and say, oh, king, I'm Jewish. Why doesn't she do that? She could say that, but it really doesn't identify her and connect her with her people. She says, if you will grant my request, she says, let my life given me and my people. So she's identifying herself with the suffering and the edict that is against her people. She's doing the very thing that Mordecai wanted her to do. So the way she expresses it is showing an identity with those who are under an edict of death. Very important. Okay? And thirdly, Queen Esther's intercession on behalf of her people was successful in moving the king to defeat her enemy because she was not willing to implicate or blame the king for the situation that she and her people currently found themselves in. Verse 4, she continues, For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Notice how she phrased the question to the king. She says, we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and annihilated. But she never implicates the king. Remember, it was the king, and it was the king's signet ring, whom he gave to Haman, he says, here, you want to make a decree to kill these people? Here's my signet ring. I'll give you the authority to do it. The king was implicated in this, but she's coming before the king to ask a favor from the king, and she knows that she's never going to get the favor. She goes before the king and says, this is your fault. She doesn't do that. She, she uses the language of the decree to be destroyed, to be killed, and annihilated. That was the decree. But she never implicates the king. She very skillfully made her request without ever implicating the king and his guilt, even though in this case, the king was guilty. Very shrewd. Very shrewd in her request. Do you see it? Okay. So this is the reason why she was going to be successful when she intercedes on behalf of her people. She was successful because it was based on an intimate relationship that she wanted the king to understand. 
She was successful because she was willing to identify with the cause and the pain and the situation of her people, and she never would ever blame her king for the circumstances and the situation in which she and her people were in. Very important, because there are many people who will go before God and blame God for the situation that they're in and want a favor from him. How wise is that? Okay, well, you say, well, she's been successful. Was she successful? That was her request. The rest of the chapter gives the, rest of the, chapter gives the response of the king to her request. And notice what the king and the, and, 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 and the enemy, Haman, responds to it. What was the impact of her request? What impact did Queen Esther's intercession have on her enemy? Number one, it led to her enemy becoming exceedingly fearful before the king and the queen, verses 5 and 6. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. And so Haman was terrified before the king and before the queen. Here we see that Queen Esther takes an intercessory role uh, on behalf of her people before the king. And when she does so, immediately her enemy becomes fearful before the king and before her. Remember that. Number two. Queen Esther's intercession on behalf of her people led to her enemy's continual downfall and eventual execution, verses 7 and 8. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the, to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. The king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Interesting. At the beginning of that verse, in verse 7, it says that the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and he went into the garden. And I asked myself, why would he do that? He's just been found out. He's just been told that Haman, the second man in the empire, was the one who construed such a decree. And what does he do? He gets up and he walks out into the palace garden. Why? Think with me. He's angry. This is a character who's always been given advice from his counselors. Haman was one of them. Now, the person, there's no, now that the, the person that he would often get advice from is the one being accused. So now he doesn't know what to do because he's always been given answers his whole life. And now he's in a situation where he can't get the answer from the advisor he would normally rely on. So he's going to go outside in the garden and contemplate what he's going to do. Why? Because he knows he's implicit. He knows he's, the reason why she's in this situation is because of himself. He doesn't know what to do. He's got no advice, no advisors. So let me go outside and let me think about this for a little while. I'm in a spot. So that's what he does. He's out in the palace garden. Meanwhile, inside the palace, what is, she, what, is, what is Haman doing? He sees that the king is upset at him. So what does he do? He's going to go to the queen and say, queen, you got to intercede for me. Right? 
And so what he does, he falls on the couch. Now, in Persian culture, what you would do at banquets, you would recline. So obviously, she's reclining here, and he walks up to her to ask for her intercession. He trips and falls, and he doesn't look like he's in a compromised position. King walks in at that time when he sees, uh, when he sees Haman asking Esther for help, but he doesn't know that. He walks in, and he sees her near his wife, and there was a protocol that you did not come near uh, a member of the king's harem which he was doing. So it doesn't look good in the king's mind when he sees this guy, Haman, next to his wife. He's violating protocol, which means you could be sentenced to death. And that's what's happening. And so he walks in, and now he's got an occasion to kill Haman. It lets him off the hook. He doesn't have to be implicit anymore. I got a legitimate reason to kill Haman. And so what do they do? They cover his face. Well, why do they cover his face? Because that's what you did before you sentenced someone in that, in that time. They covered their face because he's going to be carried away to be sentenced and executed. But notice that he continued to fall. He was on the couch. Last week we saw that Haman started to fall. Now we're seeing he's continuing to fall. And that's exactly what happens. When Esther prayed or went before the king to make a request... The enemy continued to fall, and he was going to be executed and sentenced to death. Finally, Queen Esther's intercession on behalf of her people resulted in her enemy's humiliating public death, verses 9 and 10. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, again, 75 or 80 feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. That's the end of Haman. And it was directly result, it was a direct result to the request of Esther. And interestingly, this man, Haman, gets put on the gallows for a crime he never committed, which is a reminder that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, ended up being put on a cross for a crime he did not commit. That is the power of intercession as Esther works and intervenes on behalf of her people who have the sentence of death upon them. And the result is that it opens up the opportunity for the king to defeat his enemy. And he's the only one who could do it. Esther couldn't do it. The king had to do it. But it was Esther's request that moved the king to do so. So the question remains, why is this relevant to us? Why is this important for us today? Well, let me ask you a question. The reason why Esther went before the king was because she understood that her and her people had been sold. Have you and I been sold? Have you and I been sold? Esther said that her and her people were sentenced to death, to annihilation, to destruction, to, to be killed. Are, have we been? You're not going to hear this preached often, I, I, I assure you. 
but it's in Scripture, so I have to preach on it. You call me to preach you the whole counsel of God, that's what I'm going to do, okay? She was sold, and her people were sold, to death, annihilation, and destruction to be killed. Have we? Have we been sold to death, annihilation, to be killed? There's an interesting passage that I want to read In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes to the church at Rome. And in order to get this context and understand what he's doing here, Paul has been writing to the church at Rome, telling them that the law of God, he's writing to the Jewish church and Gentiles as well in the church at Rome, he's telling them that the law of God, that God had given the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and all the Old Testament instruction, it was a gift for God's people to have the law so that they could live according to the law and thereby maintain God's presence within their community. Okay? So he wants to let the people, the Roman church know that the law that you've been given is a good law. But unfortunately, the law that God has given his people has become a curse to God's people. Why? Why, why is the law seem to be a disadvantage for God's people if God gave it for his people? And he's going to go on and say, well, the reason why the law is not good for you is because the law, though God gave you the law, he doesn't, the law is powerless to, to aid you and help you to live according to the law. The law is simply given you to show you that you don't measure up. And that you, within our human nature, don't have the ability to live and to carry out that law all the time. We, short, we fall short of it all the time. So that's what he's talking about when he writes this in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If the law is not good and it curses me because I can't live up to it, the response that he says that the Roman church would have is this. Has then what is good the law, become death to me? Has the law become a cause of death to me? Certainly not, Paul writes. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, that is of divine origin, but I am carnal, composed of flesh, sold under sin. The reason why, Paul says, that we can't live up to the law and we we can't fulfill the law's obligations is because we've been sold under sin. As they were sold, Esther and her people, we have been sold. They were sold to death. Have we been sold to death? The wages of sin is what? 623, Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 323, right? Now, I know that there are people who don't think that they're sinners. I've actually had a conversation with my best friend. Years ago, he worked at the Eastern States Exposition. And he worked at the main baked potatoes in the kitchen. And he was working with a woman. And they must have been talking about the gospel or something. And he mentioned that all people were sinners. And this woman turned around and said to him, I am not a sinner. As if to say, how dare you say that I'm a sinner? 
There are people out there who don't like the term and don't believe that they're sinners. But Paul writes that there is evidence that everybody's a sinner. And where's that evidence? It's found in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all, people, all men sinned. What he's saying is this. He says, just as through one man, Adam, all sinned. That is, Adam is the door by which sin entered the world. And then, then, then sin becomes the door by which death enters into the world. And death goes to all men because all people sinned. That's what he's saying. In other words, death is the evidence that every single person is a sinner because everyone's going to die. Physical death is the evidence of being sinful. So everyone sinned. And so therefore all are guilty or under the sentence of death because we've been all sold under sin. Our circumstances are similar to what Esther is going through. So everyone is a sinner and everyone is under the sentence of death. That's what Paul is saying. So we're in a precarious situation in terms of our humanity and no one is excluded. This shows us that the only way out from the sentence of death is through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are justified by the works of the law are under the curse. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So what the law intended, because we couldn't measure up, Christ does measure up. And when we put our faith in him, the curse goes to him, and the sentence of death is taken away from us. Romans 8, 2, 3 says this, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death because he condemned sin in the flesh. And then Ephesians 2, 1 to 5 says this, And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he ended up making us together alive with Christ. The only way out of the death sentence is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way out. That's the biblical explanation how we get out from under this death sentence because we've been sold under sin okay now since we live in a world where there are people living under a death sentence who have not believed that jesus christ is lord what is the obligation for the church and it reminds you that esther was the queen the bride of the king. And if Christians are the bride of Christ and Christ is king, that makes the church a queen. And so as Esther went before her king to intercede on behalf of people who are under a death sentence, then the church, the bride of Christ in our day, needs to go before her king to intercede on behalf of those outside of these walls who have a death sentence upon them. You see it? So then how does the church's intercession on behalf of the lost successfully move our God to defeat her enemy? It's the same way as Queen Esther did. By basing such a request on the special relationship that she has with her king. And only those who are in the church have that special relationship. Number two, by being willing to publicly identify with those with whom she is praying for. 
We need to be a part of their lives and identify with them. This will move our God to deliver them through our prayer requests. Remember, one of the reasons why Moses failed in his initial deliverance of leading the people out of Israel, out of Egypt, was because he simply looked at their suffering and didn't join them with it. Thirdly, by refusing to implicate or blame the king for the situation that she and her people currently find themselves in. We do not blame God for our brokenness and our sinfulness. We don't implicate him in that. When we do that, then God will act on our behalf and will do only what he can do, and that is defeat the enemy. For when we go before our God in prayer, in intercessory prayer, on behalf of the lost, that is, those who have a death sentence upon them, then the enemy, our enemy, Satan, becomes fearful before the king and the queen, that is, the church, the praying Christian, interceding on behalf of the lost. When the church does this, the enemy will continue to fall, leading to judgment. We saw a passage last week in, in, in Luke 10, 18, that after Jesus sent out the disciples, the 70, they came back, and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, the author writes, Eyes, How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning? The prophet Isaiah says that, referring to Lucifer, Daystar. And finally, the enemy will be humiliated publicly in defeat. That's what happens in intercessory prayer. Lightning from the ground up starts when God's people go before him and his throne, interceding on their behalf so that God will be moved when his people make their request. And he will do only what he can do, and that is defeat the power of the enemy that blinds the minds of those who do not believe and have not received Jesus Christ, the only one who removes that sentence of death. He's the only one. But it's our job as the church to go before the Lord to do that. And I asked myself, how often does the church do that? Is it possible that we see Few people coming to know the Lord and coming to the churches because the bride isn't taking up her responsibility of making such a request. I look at my own life and I convict myself. Maybe God's not doing something because you have not, because you ask not. Is that possible? Esther shows us that if we do what she does, God will act. And if we take all of what she does in her intercessory work, she has on those royal robes. She extends an invitation to a banquet that was already prepared. Then she waits patiently. And then she comes back and she makes a request based on a personal, intimate, special relationship with the king. She identifies with the suffering of her people. And she never implicates God in the process. And when the church does that, I believe what, God, what the king does for her, our God will do for us. Because he loves all people. And if we have the same heart he does, then God will move and act in ways that are behind the scenes to defeat the enemy and grant us spiritual victory in our day. This is Esther chapter 7. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. 
It's a powerful word. And it's also can be a convicting word. Uh, Lord, forgive us for not interceding as often as maybe we should be. It's particularly in times like this where people are going to be more vulnerable, uh, more susceptible because of the events that are going on in our world with the pandemic and all the, all the, the people who are frustrated and tired and angry and upset. They're going to be looking for somewhere to go. Someone who can help them, change them, love them, listen to them. May we be a church that will do so. May we follow the cue of Esther as your bride and make a prayer request on behalf of those who don't know Jesus. For we do know you're coming soon. But before you do, there are still people out there who have yet to come into the fold. And may we be a praying church, interceding on behalf of those who have a death sentence upon them, so that their eyes may be opened and see the glory of who you are. Help us as your church in this day. Help us to be bold and to be faithful as we serve you giving honor and glory to you, for you alone deserve it all. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.